Thank you so much for coming for service. And uh, before we begin, shall we go to God in prayer? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much always for a chance for us to gather as a people to open your word and let your word speak to us. So today, as we point to your great love for us, may your words and your Holy Spirit transform us into your image and let us not just hear your word and walk away, but let us hear your word and walk in the narrow path you have set for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. So about 20 years ago, my wife and I were still dating, and we went to the Botanic Gardens. And so in the cool of the evening, we sat on a bench, you know those UNESCO heritage bench. And then we were chatting away, and then the philosophical side of me just made me pop the question. I asked her, why do people even get married? At the moment, there was a great silence, making the park even quieter than usual. Because at the moment, none of us had a concrete answer to the question. So why did I ask that question? You see, in modern times, a man and a woman can date and can enjoy all the perks of an emotionally intimate relationship. Especially now with smartphones, we are always instantly connected, no matter what distance to separate the lovers. And then, even now, in our context, in our cultural context, if a man and woman would choose to cohabit together, not that I would encourage or the Bible encourages that, no, but if they were to choose to do so, the people around them wouldn't even blink an eye. All these were not even possible 50 years ago. So with all these major cultural shifts, getting married seems rather unnecessary. So in fact, some people in the world will argue that marriage is a sure way to kill off romance in a relationship because they believe that human beings like animals are not meant to be faithful. You see, they say that before you're married, you're like tau sao pao, no? Tau sao pao, right? Very sweet inside. The moment you're married, become manto, you're no more feeling. Feelings. So at the end of the other spectrum, however, then you have this group of people who fight and fight to get the right to be married, regardless of their sexual orientation. And then because they say that marriage is the highest recognition and the greatest validation of their love. So in short, some will see their marriage as an oppression against love, while others will see marriage as the ultimate expression of love. So in light of our modern times, my question was a very serious question. Why do people even get married? But it's just not a question that you ask on a date, that's eh? the one the, the young men around here, unless you want to be killed and then you're part of the garden forever. And we, we walk past and you see this big sign, here lies the foolish man who once asked his date, why do people even get married? But thankfully for me, my date had a strong faith in God and she was also gentle in her ways, so I didn't die. And a few years later, we got married and she's sitting over there. So, but why do we get married? Why even remain faithful in marriage? And what is the purpose of marriage? So as a start, let us ask Socrates. He's the ancient Greek philosopher, and he was credited with one of the founding fathers of Western philosophy. And he was once asked, should one get married or not? And this was his response. It was like that. He says, by all means marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. But if you get a bad wife, you become a philosopher. 
And modern philosophers didn't do well either in this area. Next slide. We can see the list of names here. Adam Smith, Descartes, Kant, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, and Jean-Paul Sartre. This is just a sample. These are all the famous Western philosophers we know. And friends, none of them were married. Interesting. So maybe in all their searching, they still could not find an answer to the purpose of marriage. And because during ancient times in Europe, marriages remained largely functional, where families unite together to climb the social class ladder. And then from the 18th century, there was a new movement in Western Europe, and it swung the continent to the other extreme. The new movement was called Romanticism, and it focused on emotions, on feelings, and moods. So Romanticism, it spreads the idea, the idea that a good marriage is one that should be fused with romantic love. You see, before that, there was a reaction, it, it, before that, people get married and they can have sex without love. It was just functional. And then these Romanticism philosophers, they came in and they said we could, through marriage, achieve the highest happiness and the fulfillment of self. They were inspired by romance of uh, romantic tales from the French courts, where the knights would woo all the noble ladies and love them even though they were not married. So over the 200 years later, the French spread the ideas of l'amour across Europe, and the West, they fought for the ultimate combination of love and sex in marriage as the supreme happiness in life. So when you can have the excitement of a love affair in your marriage forever, a good marriage, they say, should end all your loneliness. And this, my friends, became the idea of our modern marriage. And where pleasures of love are the highest criteria in choosing one's spouse. And the feelings of love is the main reason why you should or should not remain in that marriage. Because when we lose that loving feeling, it is time, perhaps, to say, to move on to another relationship, to find the happiness again. And then in the 21st century, this feeling of love with sex becomes the highest good of humanity. It is seen as a fulfillment of the human potential, a right to be defended, regardless of your sexual orientation or your marital status. Maybe let's take a look now at the Asian cultures. And then when you take a look at that, you realize the French, as usual, were fashionably late. What do I mean? Because more than 2,000 years ago, the Indians themselves, they already believed that the ideal marriage is one between a man and a woman in love with each other. There's a term for it. They call this the Gandhava marriage. And here in this system, it is the woman who chose the man to be her husband. In such a system, if a woman is forced to marry someone against her will, then be careful because her curses against you will be so powerful that you will hamper your spiritual achievements. So don't play, play. Interestingly, however, by the 16th century in India, marriage went in the opposite direction of continental Europe. Marriage was no longer seen as a union between two lovers, but as a social duty of reproduction joining of two families together in the same caste. And to make things more complex, around 500 BC, 
When Buddhism was founded in India, monkhood was seen as a spiritual path where celibacy was better than marriage. And so in one of the Buddhist stories, the Buddha's chief disciple called Ananda, he arrived at a well. And in a hot day, he asked a woman for a drink. And the woman was from a lower caste. And so she was so touched that this high-ranking monk would talk to her, would even associate with her, that she fell in love with him. So she asked the Buddha for a chance to marry this disciple, Ananda. And the Buddha agreed on condition that you spend one year as a nun. And so she readily agreed just to be the one she loved. And however, the year passed and her emotions calmed down as she listens to the Buddha's teachings. Then she realized that her past pursuit of romance was actually a very shameful one, according to those teachings. So she renounced the desire to marry Ananda, and she remained a nun. Buddhism, my friends, emphasized on celibacy in those days, but it was not the first to teach asceticism in India. But it was one of the powerful forces to brought this idea to China during the first century in the Han Dynasty. So, in China to this day, for those embarked on spiritual developments, celibacy is one way to guard your purity. That's what they say. But given the importance of families and having descendants to carry down your family line, the Chinese are very pragmatic. So we still place a high emphasis on marriage. And the Chinese concept of marriage was traced to Chinese stories of creation of mankind, attributed to the first brother and sister called Fusi and Niwa. These creatures, they have faces of humans and their bodies of snakes. And it was through Niwa that the humans were formed. They were made from mud. And in another version of the story, Niwa and Fusi were survivors of a great flood. And that by the command of the God of heaven, they married each other. And this union became the basis of all marriages in ancient China. And like the Indians, romance was celebrated in ancient China, as seen by many love poems written throughout the centuries. The poem between the cowherd and the weaver girl was written more than 2,600 years ago, where the star-crossed lovers could only meet once a month. And so this famous story became the basis of a Chinese Valentine's Day, known as the TC Festival. And this year, it was on the 14th August. We just missed it. But romance in China was never always encouraged as a basis for marriage because of the priority they fixed for social duty. In fact, the stories of romance in China tend to be the, the love between a man and a, and a fox spirit, a man and a fairy, and usually with very unhappy endings. So they discourage all the young people to fall in love. And during the Cultural Revolution, Young couples were advised to subject no longer to traditional marriage values, but to what? To marry someone whom you can share your passion for the revolution. And that's a cultural revolution. And recently, with the rise of capitalism in China, there's an increasing number of Chinese singles choosing to remain single to keep their earning power and social status. This follows the trends in all prosperous Asian cities like Taiwan, Singapore, and South Korea. So by now we'll be asking, 
Why have we heard all this history of love and marriage? My answer to you is to make you even more confused. No, but seriously, for Singaporeans, we are in the middle of East and West, a confluence of Asian and Western cultures. It is important to us to understand where our ideas of marriage come from. So generally, a typical Singaporean would choose his life partner based on the feelings of romance. And then, but at the same time, you worry about the conflicts between your family and her family because of a sense of social duty. And finally, we will delay our commitment in marriage because it might hamper the development of ourselves to the fullest human potential. And in Singapore, we measure that by monetary success in our career. So after this sermon, a girl can look at her date and say, now I know why it takes so long to propose to me. Because of all these values that we hold so tightly that are in conflict with one another. But more seriously, we need to realize that our ideas of marriage are always changing. They are never constant. The modern challenges to the institution of marriage is not new. From history, we could see that marriage is either a means to fulfill the human potential, or it could be swung to the extreme where marriage is seen as unclean, something that hampers us from being developed to our fullest, either spiritually or for our personal happiness. So marriage is either seen as an oppression against us, or it could be seen as the highest expression of humanity. And the changes that we perceive about marriage stem from the different stories we tell ourselves. Whether you believe in the stories of the French court, or you are chasing after the stories of the cowherd and the weaver girl, or the story of the monk and the woman and the well. And despite all these stories and human development, if you're honest with ourselves, we're still very confused about the idea of marriage. In all of our searching, marriage remains a mystery to us. So I turn to the Bible to say what it says about marriage, and here are some of the major points. So we have to begin right at the beginning. The very foundation of marriage starts at Genesis chapter 1. Can't go any back further. Genesis chapter 1, 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. Some of us are very familiar with these verses. And so right from the start, when God made mankind, he made humans either in male or female form. Only two permutations. And regardless of gender, both are equal in worth, made in the same image of God. And then out of these two genders, reproduction was made possible. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in numbers. Fill the earth and subdue it. See, human beings were not created to be living alone. We are to multiply and live as a group. Together, then we can bear God's image. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. God also gave mankind a purpose, a mission. And you continue here. He says, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, but over every living creature that moves on the ground. And from this verse, we see that there's a distinction between mankind and the animals. Our uniqueness in all of creation is that only human beings can bear God's image and to rule on his behalf. And so it's in this context that we zoom into Genesis 2, 
where we're given a more detailed account of the creation of mankind. And the first man was called Adam, and this was what God said after he created him. Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The phrase, not good to be alone, is because we are meant to live in communities. And for that to happen, we must go forth and multiply. This is part of our human design, our psyche. But today in modern times, loneliness is a growing problem and it kills. According to one article in Harvard Business Review, loneliness may lead to a decrease in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. In other words, if you go for a party every day for five cigarettes a day, you still live longer than someone who lives lonely. So in order for Adam not to be alone, God made him a wife named Eve. Verse 22, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So the word Adam means man, and the name Eve means life. So when man marries life, they can reproduce other human lives, and then they won't be alone. But it wasn't just for functional reasons that Eve was made. There was romance. Because before that, God showed Adam all the other creatures to see if they were suitable partners for him. But to all these animals, Adam said, Nah. And then when he saw Eve for the first time, what did he say? He says, Wow. Let's look at it. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Friends, this is a very profound declaration that Adam recognized Eve, that she was perfectly customized for him, that she's like him in many ways, made from him, and yet she was not him. They are not each other, but they complement each other Perfectly. Now that is the first wedding the Bible recorded for us. And the next two verses are even more profound. Verse 24, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. From the union of Adam and Eve, this sets a pattern of human marriages. The couple first become mature and leave their parents' protection and then they start a new family unit. And the man is united to his wife and becomes one flesh with her. See, the one flesh is a very graphic detail showing the beauty of sex between a man and a woman. How do we know? Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. See, sex was created by God to be fully enjoyed in marriage in pure holiness and with no shame. And through sex, Adam and Eve expressed their emotional intimacy, their complementariness, and through sex, they can go forth and multiply. There was romance, love, and function because it is not good for men to be alone. And so everyone in this world, in this room, we are all born out of a heterosexual union. You always need the essence of a man combined with the unique biology of a woman to reproduce. This biological evidence supports God's design for marriage between one man and one woman. 
And from the beauty of this passage, we can see that God designed marriage. He intended romance and sex to go in a committed relationship. And then the story continued with Adam and Eve being tempted by the serpent to disobey God. And he caused them to think that God's plans and designs for life and marriage and sex were not the best. That maybe he was holding something back that was good from them. So after listening to the serpent story, Adam and Eve desired to go beyond God's design. And then they ate the forbidden fruit. But instead of finding a new heaven, they were kicked out of paradise. And instead of opening their eyes to find new wisdom, the eyes could no longer deal with their own nakedness. The purity of the nakedness was now replaced with a new sense of shame. So they quickly sowed leaves to cover themselves. And to this day, humans desire so much to have the one flesh union experience in nakedness, but at the same time, sex is so corrupted that we somehow think it's dirty. That's why we say it's dirty jokes and dirty songs. Being conflicted within ourselves, we become confused. And from that day on, the Bible recorded for us that the continual rebellion against God's plans in the human hearts begin. Woman, the wife, attempted to control the husband and the husband oppressed the wife in return. And instead of being faithful to one wife, men started taking multiple wives and sex became a source of corruption, reducing men from the bearers of God's image to beastly creatures of basic instinct. From this perspective, the Bible reveals us why marriage, romance, and sex in this fallen world, in our times, can be so frustrating and so confusing. But thankfully, God did not leave us in this state. He sent His Son Jesus on a mission to restore all things. In the Gospel of John, Jesus performed his first miracle at a, a wedding, a wedding of Cana. There he changed the water, the water to be used for ceremonial washing, into wine for the wedding party. This revealed who he was, that he was the one who was to make all things clean so that we can rejoice and there's no more need for the ceremonial washing water. And then one day, a woman in the book of John recorded for us was caught in adultery and he, she was brought by a group of religious teachers to Jesus. They brought her to him to trap him, to ask him if he would condemn her by stoning to death. If he said yes, then he would have broke the crime against the Roman law by committing murder. But if he said no, then he would be seen as condoning the sin of adultery. But Jesus only said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And very soon, the story continues, angry men left one by one until no one was left behind except Jesus and the woman. And the one was left to condemn her because everyone has sinned. No one was sinless. And then Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. But how could Jesus say that? How could a holy God not condemn a sinner. You see, the reason he did not condemn us for our sins is because he, he himself came to be condemned on our behalf. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And to save the world through Jesus, he had to go to the cross to die, to be punished on our behalf 
for our sins. And the night, the night before the fateful day, before he left for the cross, Jesus told his disciples that he was to leave them, to go to his father's house to prepare a room for them. He was using the language of what? Of marriage to describe his departure. That the groom had to return to his father's house in Jewish tradition to prepare the marital room. And then he will return after that to bring his bride back with him to the new room. In other words, Jesus was using marriage as an analogy to describe his great love for his disciples, for us. That he was the groom and his people, we are the people, are his bride. And that is why the Apostle Paul wrote in the following words, Ephesians 5.31, he said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And verse 32, this is a profound mystery, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, notice the words, this is a profound mystery. Because what the Bible is saying is this, we will never understand what marriage is all about until we understand God's hidden plan to save the world. It's hidden from us since the beginning He made the world, and now it's revealed to us at the cross of Jesus. So marriage between a man and woman, it symbolizes the union between Christ, Jesus, and the church. And each time we see a bride walk down in her perfect wedding gown towards her groom, we are seeing a picture of humanity cleansed of her sins, walking towards Jesus, the groom, who died to wash away her sins. And until we can see this profound mystery, no human mind, no philosopher could figure out the meaning of marriage. And for those who know this unveiled mystery, then we begin to discern God's plan and His design for marriage. So during the heightened alert, my primary one boy came home from school and then he proclaimed, he said this, recess is my least favourite period. I was surprised. Because usually that's his favourite period. So I asked him what happened. And he said because now, because of the heightened alert for recess, he was no longer allowed to play because of the safe distancing. And he could not even talk with his friends. He could only sit at his designated place in the canteen, finish his food quietly, and then wait in silence until recess is over. Basically, it felt like punishment. So why exchange? The design pattern, the design for recess has changed. What was meant to be a fun time was no longer fun. And similarly for marriage, God designed in a certain way for our enjoyment, for His purposes. But when we change His design for marriage, Maybe that's why it's no longer fun. In verse 33, Paul applied the revealed mystery of Christ and the church to show the design of marriage. He said this, However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. See, for a successful marriage, Paul says that the husband's role then is to consider his wife's needs as equally important as his own. So men, those who are honest with ourselves, we understand that this is a very, very tall order because we tend to selfishly prioritize our very own needs first. However, God designed husband to be sacrificial, like how Jesus died for his bride, the church. 
So if you follow this pattern, then toxic masculinity is never allowed in marriage. We are never to reduce our wives to just body parts for our pleasures. Instead, we are to care for her, care for them like we care for our own bodies, because we are now, together with our wives, parts of the same body, the church. And then as for the wife, one word only, she is to respect her husband. Well, usually, you see, the woman's respect for her man starts very high at the first date and has gone down ever since. See, the struggle to respect the husband is a spiritual battle against her own pride. But once a woman can respect, then she can submit to his leadership, just as how the church gladly submits to Jesus. So similarly, toxic femininity is also not allowed. A disrespectful tongue produces words that can tear down your husband. And that is a sure way to tear down your own marriage. And then when we see the patterns, the design of marriage in this way, we realize that through our respective roles, husbands and wives in your own role, they are being molded into Christ's image as you live out that way. Because the husband is, learns to love like how Jesus loves. And the wife learns to submit like how Jesus submits to his Father. In other words, unlike what we think, God's idea of marriage is not a perpetual state of bliss and ecstasy. Rather, God uses marriage to hothouse couples to become more and more like his son Jesus. That through marriage, the couple regains the image of God within them. Because we now bear God's image again, we can have the fullest human potential. And so whenever we feel that marriage is a form of oppression, it is because we are resisting God's plan for us. And whenever we are disappointed with marriage, it's because it was never meant to be the expression of our human love. Instead, marriage is supposed to be a way for us to understand God's love for us, not our love for each other. You see, for humans, there are three kinds of love relationships that you can experience. And each of these relationships are analogies for our relationship with God. So the three loves are the love between parents and children, the love between friends, and the love between a husband and a wife. And in the Bible, God is our father, God is also our friend, and he's also our husband. So I was discussing this with my wife one day, and we realized that there's something special about marriage that sets it apart from the other two loves. And what is it? That in marriage, there is this word, covenant. You see, covenant means a special agreement between a man and a woman to remain committed to each other through thick and thin. And sometimes to be faithful to the marital covenant, we must exercise our human will, our determination to do so, to rise above our feelings. And because there'll be days you really don't feel like sticking to the covenant you have made with your spouse. And one of the most painful stories of the Bible is the story of the prophet Hosea. You see, the prophet Hosea was commanded by God to marry a, a promiscuous woman named Gomer. And then together they had three children. And then later she broke her covenant with him. She committed adultery and betrayed the prophet. And she left him behind with three children to 
go for her own, her own happiness. And over time, she prostituted herself again and again and again to various lovers until she was in debt. And although Hosea had every right to walk away from the marriage, God commanded Hosea, the prophet, to pay off his wife's debts to her lovers. So with his own money, Hosea bought back his own wife. And then he committed his love to her again. He renewed his covenant with her again. And through all these, God proclaimed to his people, the ancient Israelites, that despite him being the faithful husband, Israel kept going off to other lovers, committing spiritual adultery with false gods. But God will keep his covenant, even though we forsake the covenant. And God will pursue us back. He will win them back, woo them with his love, because God's love is greater than our sins. And this is a love story between God the husband and us, his wife. And this story of romance culminated at a cross where God himself paid off our debts with his very own life to buy us a new covenant with his people. And so this love story between God and us gives us the reason then to remain faithful in marriages. That the love of God in our hearts gives us the strength to persevere in marriage. And unless we know the faithful love of God, it will remain a mystery to you and me whether you should be faithful in your marriage. Because many times in our anger in marriage, in our marital conflicts, in our disappointments with each other, we are called to make a choice. Do we give in to our dark emotions and walk away from the marriage? Or do we rise above our feelings and to choose to forgive and to pray humbly and choose to remain committed to our covenant? You see, to rise above our feelings and emotions is what separates us from the animals. We bear the image of God. But if we let feelings determine how we behave, then we are only creatures of instinct, reacting blindly to stimuluses in the environment. And when we make life decisions based on feelings alone, then we are not yet matured beyond the schoolboy, a little child, who refuses to go to school because tomorrow got things here. That's my son. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that feelings are bad in themselves. God made us emotional feelings. It is good to feel, but we are not to be slaves to our feelings. And I'm also not saying that Christians will have trouble-free marriages. Rather, believers will encounter trouble in their marriages. But we have the grace of God to help us to overcome the troubles. That by prayer and by humility before God, we beg, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to rise above our feelings, to forgive and to choose to remain faithful in marriage. And then one day when we look back, we realize that God has given us our spouse not just to enjoy romance, but through our spouse, we are molded into the image of his son Jesus more and more, fulfilling the highest 
human potential. And before we end, let me tell you one last story. See, one day Jesus was passing by the town of Samaria. And the Samaritans, they were looked down by the Jews, but yet Jesus chose to go there. And upon arrival, he sat by a well under the hot sun and he asked a woman for a drink. And the woman was surprised because not only was she despised as a woman and a despised Samaritan, but she knew that she was a woman, a person that was looked down by her own people. Why? Because this woman had had five husbands. And now, the one she's living with was not her husband. So even by today's standards, that would have been a scandal. But Jesus knew her background, and yet he did not condemn her nor despise her. He simply told her, If you knew who I am, you would have asked me for the living water. And then he said, Everyone who drinks this water from the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never, never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, Jesus knew that the woman had a much greater thirst, a thirst in her soul that she had been trying to quench with her five failed marriages and one cohabitation. Sadly, romance, sex, and marriage, no matter how good they are, could never satisfy her. This Samaritan woman was so thirsty, thinking that marriage could fill up the hole in her heart, that she was led from one disappointment to another. But Jesus, in his great compassion, he did not condemn her. He offered her his living water, for he alone could quench her thirst. And so today, many of us are still struggling with a great thirst in our souls. We're still trying to tell ourselves all sorts of stories, trying to fill up the holes of our hearts with these stories. Narratives of sex, romance, marriage. And these stories we tell ourselves only led us to more confusion. But the Bible stories of love are not stories that we tell ourselves. Rather, they are stories that God has been telling us. Stories of His eternal love for us. Stories of His faithfulness towards us, even when we have been unfaithful towards Him. And this grand story of love will end one day, when our groom Jesus returns to bring us back with him to his father's house. And on that day, there will be a grand wedding feast. On that day, God will start a new beginning. But today, and today, the invitation to the wedding still holds to everyone. The Spirit and the Bride says, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gifts of the water of life. So my friends, which story will you choose to believe today? The stories that you tell yourselves that will leave you dry and thirsty? Or the stories of God's love, God's love for us, and the only love that can quench your thirst? Let us go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. 
for reveal to us from the Bible, your word, and how much you love us despite our unfaithfulness. So help us to set aside our self-righteousness, to think we got it all right in our lives, but to come humbly before Jesus, your Son, and to see our need to worship Him, to have Him quench our thirst. And only then can we see that faithfulness in marriage is not an oppression, and nor is marriage the highest expression of love for romance. Rather, have us to enjoy the beauty of marriage as the highest expression of God's love for us by sending His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for the new covenant. And by for those of us who have been given the gift of marriage, help us that through marriage, that we will be molded to obtain the fullest potential of humanity, the restored image of God within us. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen.